Welcome to Discovering the Old Testament, a series of podcasts exploring one of the primary sources of the Judeo-Christian tradition. I'm your host, Dr. Sheldon Greaves. We're back with episode 19 of our podcast. Welcome to our regular listeners and to those who may be listening for the first time. Thank you for joining us. The Old Testament has a rather unsavory reputation in the popular imagination as a bloodthirsty book. There are charges that it sanctions or condones genocide and mass murder. There's no denying that some bad stuff happens, and much of it takes place during the early years as Israel ends its long sojourn in the desert and moves into the Promised Land. This is a main theme of the book of Joshua where God essentially does for Israel what he had done in the past, namely, acted as the ultimate ace in the hole, the secret weapon by which the Israelites could take on and crush all comers. This creates a problem for many readers who view wars of aggression and the wholesale slaughter of entire peoples as unneighborly at best. We'll talk more about that later, but there is another problem that is perhaps larger and more troubling from the believer's point of view. Decades of excavation and analysis of the archaeological record in and around Canaan and the places where the Israelites were supposedly to have won their one-sided victories against the Canaanites show no evidence of a violent takeover. Nothing, or very nearly so. As we've mentioned once or twice earlier, the site of the ancient city of Jericho contains no evidence that anyone was even living there during the dates when the Israelites were said to be moving in. In fact, for the time of Joshua, there isn't even any sign that the city had a wall, let alone one that came a-tumbling down. The archaeological record shows further that most of the cities mentioned in Joshua did not have city walls at this time. A couple of them, like Hatzor, had a city gate, but no wall to go with it, so that structure was obviously ceremonial in function. There's also the story of the destruction of the city of Ai, a name which apparently comes from the word for ruin. This seems like an unlikely name for a city. 20th century biblical scholar William F. Albright took the position that the story of the city's destruction was originally taken from an account of an attack on Bethel, but later transferred to Ai. This was his attempt to reconcile the strange name of the city, and it implies that the story was written long after the time for the supposed events. William Deaver, one of America's foremost authorities on the archaeology of ancient Israel, has made a very thorough study of the archaeology of Canaan. He identified at least 19 additional sites mentioned in the book of Joshua. None of them show any evidence of destruction. The other two sites, Hatzor and Bethel, show evidence of a destruction layer consistent with a military invasion. However, we don't have any clear evidence that the Israelites were involved. One proposed answer to this problem is that when the Bible talks of cities, they're talking about forces sent by those cities as part of a defensive coalition intended to turn back the invaders. This is an interesting hypothesis, but the textual and archaeological evidence for it just aren't there. 
On the other side of the problem, we have the so-called biblical minimalists who have applied an approach best described as postmodernism on crystal meth. These scholars seek to deny the very existence of the ancient Israelite nation altogether, and while the lack of evidence for a violent conquest of Canaan would play into their position, there is far, far too much evidence of an Israelite presence for their work to be taken seriously, and we'll say no more about them for the time being. Another attempt to explain the lack of a violent takeover is a theory that the Israelite entry into Canaan happened over a longer period of time, in which small bands of Yahweh-worshipping semi-nomads infiltrated into the land, settling mostly in the hill country. Eventually, their numbers grew to where they formed a coalition that grew into a national presence. This is not entirely inconsistent with the biblical record, since Exodus chapter 12, verse 38 describes a mixed multitude that left Egypt, a possible reference to a much more heterogeneous band of people than the traditional story provides. The Merneptah inscription also supports this, since the name Israel is accompanied by a sign that refers to a people, but not an organized nation. There is also some evidence from the Bible that, early on, the Israelite newcomers enjoyed a more symbiotic relationship with the established peoples than you would expect if the Israelites were in fact pursuing a policy of genocide with a side helping of scorched earth. The peaceful infiltration theory does present a problem, however, for the role and function of Moses, or whoever it was that instigated the transition from Canaanite polytheism to Israelite monotheism. Such a revolutionary transition, and there does appear to have been something along those lines, rather demands a more focused moment in history. A revolution that radical was also more likely to have happened if there was a charismatic leader in the mix. For those inclined to read the text literally, or even to take it at face value, obviously this presents a problem. While the Old Testament does not really pretend to be a history in the way we moderns think of histories, it does contain a lot of historical information. Unfortunately, it isn't always laid out in a way that hangs together. This, however, is a big problem. The conquest of Canaan is seen as one of the defining events of the Israelite nation, if nothing else, as the coda to the whole experience of the Exodus. One of the points that I have made before, and will continue to make, is that the Bible is less concerned with proving a point than with making a point. But what point does the book of Joshua intend to make? This is especially significant when we get to all these hideous passages, like this one from Joshua chapter 11, verses 12 through 15. And all the cities of those kings, and all the kings of them, did Joshua take, and smote them with the edge of the sword, and he utterly destroyed them, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded. Every man they smote with the edge of the sword, until they had destroyed them, neither left they any to breathe. As the Lord commanded Moses his servant, so did Moses command Joshua, and so did Joshua. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord commanded Moses. This is definitely not one of the more warm and fuzzy passages of the Bible. 
But it begs the question, if there was a point being made, what is that point? Some scholars point out that the language of extermination was a common descriptor even for the most modest of military victories. The Merneptah that we mentioned before provides one of the earliest extra-biblical references to Israel in Canaan. It describes what sounds like a genocidal slaughter. Quote, Israel is laid waste and his seed is not, the inscription intones. Obviously, they were exaggerating. The Mesha Stele, the so-called Moabite stone from a much later conflict, describes a Moabite victory over Israel in similar terms. In fact, they use exactly the same word, cherem, for the kind of utter, merciless, complete destruction that the Bible uses to describe the fate of Israel's enemies, who are subject to the holy ban, which mandates that none be spared. Clearly, the job was less than complete. But we don't have an answer to our question. One proposed answer is that this is just how gods behaved in this time in human history, and this was a time when nations went to war and tried to kill as many of the other guys as possible. That's just how humans and their deities roll. The perfect, all-good god of later Judeo-Christian tradition is not this god, who is, one might say, playing for keeps. Still another explanation is that the needs of whenever this text was edited into the current form required a militant backstory for Israel in the face of aggressive and dangerous adversaries. It was written as a piece of nationalist myth or propaganda. If so, it wouldn't be the first time. Others have speculated that this was written as an attempt to excuse Israel's occasional forays into military conquest and to imply God's favor in these foreign adventures. A former president of the United States invoked the very same God as telling him to liberate the Iraqi people, so it should not surprise us to find this ploy being used in the past. In fact, the verdict is still out on the ultimate answer to this question, assuming there is one. However, it's important to note that the Bible is not as comfortable with the idea of mass killing as some of its critics would have us think. Ironically, one demonstration of this reluctance might be implicit in the ancient Israelite practice of holy war. The Old Testament turns out to be a very nuanced book one that has a much greater ability to handle ambiguity than the black-and-white character of some of its sections or the all-or-nothing interpretation imposed upon it by readers who don't share its appreciation for the real world. The God of the Old Testament shows a remarkable ability to go for what is possible if attaining the ideal is out of reach. According to the covenant that God makes with Noah, there are two rules that must be obeyed for a viable society to emerge. Rule number one, human blood must not be shed. Rule number two, animal blood must not be ingested. The latter stipulation takes us through the blood prohibition in Leviticus 17 and the dietary laws, 
which were intended to restrict the taking of animal life to an acceptable minimum. The preferred state of things was, as God spells it out in Eden, humans are to be vegetarians. However, humans demonstrate a carnivorous nature, and there is nothing for it but for God to make a concession that allows humans to kill animals for their use. But what about the other rule, that human blood must not be shed? Genesis states that God destroyed the whole earth and every living thing on it in the flood because the world was filled with violence, which is to say people were murdering each other left and right. In the post-Diluvian world, humans have also demonstrated that they can be homicidal towards one another, individually and collectively. Is there a divine concession for this inconvenient reality? The conduct of warfare in early Israelite narrative follows a consistent pattern. When confronted by an enemy, God is the one who takes care of things. Generally, the conflict comes down to a very small or outmatched force that nonetheless scores a stunning and decisive victory. Traditional interpretations of these holy war narratives assume that their point is to argue for total faith in God as one who will fight Israel's battles. Clearly, given the nature of Israel's early victories, this looks fine on the face of it but it is still very much out of line with the injunction against shedding human blood. Noah's covenant makes no exceptions, even for the act of warfare. A common feature of these wars involves a minimum of Israelite personnel. The battles are decided quickly and decisively. You don't find many extended, protracted campaigns. Now, this is an early speculation on my part. I have not yet explored this fully. But, if one draws a parallel with the rationale that led to the dietary laws, and note their common connection with the Noachide covenant, I cannot help but wonder if another such rationale is implicit in the Holy War narratives. The Holy War tradition seeks to accomplish an outcome similar to that of the dietary laws. It reduces the number of lethal combatants in Israel to the bare minimum. By divine intervention, God constrains their exposure to combat by making the engagements and wars as short as possible. It's interesting to note how this stacks up against other traditions of divine warfare found later in the Old Testament, the apocryphal and pseudepigraphic literature, and the works of the early Christian church. In a comparative study of eschatological battle literature, Ted Erho notes that in the end-of-the-world final battle prophecies, with the exception of the war scroll from the Dead Sea community, none of them depict the faithful, the believers, as combatants in the last great conflict. While these texts are much, much later than Joshua, there is apparently a resistance to the idea that the faithful are to actually ply the weapons that will overthrow evil. Looking earlier to the prophetic works of Isaiah and other classical Hebrew prophets, we see their insistence that God alone fights the battles, and that to rely on human strength was a recipe for disaster while the idea of reducing the participation of Israelites in acts of war, if it actually existed, probably had molted from Israelite theology by this time, it still seems possible to me 
that the early religious thinkers of the Old Testament understood the extremely deleterious psychological effects of lethal close-quarter combat on the participants who survived. Modern studies, such as those undertaken by psychologist and former Army Ranger Dr. David Grossman, have yielded significant amounts of evidence to show that the act of killing another human being is one of the most traumatic psychic events that a person can undergo and survive. Humans normally have very powerful inhibitions against killing. These inhibitions only get stronger as one gets closer to one's antagonist. These inhibitions can be removed through training or certain kinds of negative circumstances, but there is a profound psychological cost for doing so. In fact, early in the 20th century during World War I, the British military found that units placed in forward positions for longer than 60 days where they were expected to kill their enemies suffered psychological casualty rates of nearly 96%, even if they did not actually see combat. This caused the British and other Allied commands to rotate units back to the rear every 30 days or so, allowing them to recuperate. Did the biblical narratives of holy war imply an understanding of these issues, and an attempt to reconcile them with the expectations of the Noahide Covenant? Unfortunately, this model is only speculation at this point. Another problem that came about due to the genocidal narratives in Joshua and elsewhere in the Old Testament concerned the Holocaust. One result of the Holocaust was a re-examination of the theological problem of evil. The problem was not new, of course, but the Holocaust forced a lot of thinkers to explore whether the answers of the past were adequate to address the sheer scope of evil made manifest in the Shoah. Many Jewish philosophers and theologians, finding themselves on the receiving end of attempted genocide, began rethinking and reassessing the place of those genocidal stories in the biblical narratives. Remembering that the Old Testament is a record of why Israel failed to live up to their potential as a covenant people might shed new light on Israel's foundational conquests. Was the nation of Israel doomed from the start, they wondered, because it was born out of a war of conquest? Both the conquest narratives and much of the preceding legal sections of the Torah spend some time explaining why the former inhabitants were expelled, most of it being their fault. Since the archaeological record argues for something much more peaceful, the question becomes even more perplexing. The Bible is correct on one count. Humans too often build their nations on the ashes and blood of someone else's country. It's good to bear in mind that the Old Testament narratives are less a series of lessons than they are the grist for finding answers. I think that the post-Holocaust thinkers may be on to something. The deeper lesson of Israelite holy war, if one is to be had, is that the path of violence is predisposed to be circular. Discovering the Old Testament is supported by the donations of our listeners 
To make a donation, visit our website at lafkospress.com. That's L-A-F-K-O-S press.com. Discovering the Old Testament is a production of Lafkos Press of San Jose, California. Join us again next time as we continue our journey through the mysterious and exotic world of the Old Testament. Thank you.